is the Reformation over? And uh, we are now in a better position to answer to this question because we have seen uh, what is at stake with Roman Catholicism as a whole uh, from a, a historical, institutional, and theological perspective. And what I'm trying to uh, do in this session is to uh, summarize what you can find if you log in at istthereformationover.com. At the end of last year, uh, together with 300 Christian leaders around the world, uh, Europe, the US, Latin America, Asia, Africa, we drafted a document, only a two-page document, um, trying to answer the question whether or not the Reformation was over. In preparation of the, uh, uh, the 500th centenary of the Protestant Reformation, which occurs this year. And so you will find there uh, materials related to the topic as well as the full statement. And uh, what you can also do if you read it and you agree with it, you can also sign it and uh, uh, send it to other people you, who might be willing to uh, um, uh, do the same. So, after centuries of controversies and strained relationships between evangelicals and Catholics around the world, there is a growing ecumenical climate claiming that we are now facing a new era, a new time. The past controversies belong to the past. And what lies ahead of us is a new time where all Christians from different denominations, different persuasions, different backgrounds need to come together in order to overcome past divisions and to face the challenges of our present-day world in a united front. And moreover, this ecumenical climate uh, claims that what belonged to the past controversies uh, has now been solved. There, the, the issues that were at stake in the 16th centuries, second century, are now can be now bypassed by a new ecumenical rapprochement and ecumenical um, sharing of uh, going beyond those issues. And these issues have been resolved. So there is no need to maintain what has been overcome. That's what the argument, the ecumenical argument goes, as far as the ecumenical arg argument goes. And so why do people argue this? They argue this for two main reasons, of course, summarizing. One is that looking at the present day world, Christianity as a whole is challenged by two main sources. There are two main challenges that the Christian world is facing, so it appears to be. 
On the one hand, the challenge of Islam is becoming more and more dangerous, urgent, apparent. And so it is an external challenge that is threatening various parts of the Christian world and long-term also questioning the stability of the West. That's one challenge. The second challenge is the challenge of secularism, the denial of God, the denial of Christian values, the questioning of the Christian heritage, and uh, the growing secular agenda shaping morality, society, and policies, and so threatening the stability of the modern world. So many people are, look, rightly I think, looking at the situation around us, and they are seeing these are the two main big world long-term issues we have to deal with. What is the point of maintaining theological controversies, maintaining ecclesiastical divisions, maintaining spiritual separations, given the fact that the two main dangers are coming from outside, namely Islam and secularism. Why not finally coming to a brotherly embracement which would include Christians from all backgrounds, moving beyond past divisions? This is a very powerful argument that has emotional sides as well as theological sides. The other main reason why people argue that the Reformation is now over is that has to do with the fact that the historical divisions are now considered no longer as matters of mutual exclusion. You are either supporting or embracing the doctrine of justification by faith alone or you are not. Today's tendency in our pluralist, ecumenical climate is to say the things that we thought were divisive and mutually exclusive need to be considered as legitimate different perspectives on the same issue. And therefore, you are entitled, we are entitled to uphold the doctrine of justification by faith, but at the same time, being aware that what Luther rediscovered is only one human perspective on the, the doctrine of salvation. And perhaps the Catholics got it right in looking at the same subject from another perspective. And so after five centuries, instead of considering the two perspectives as being mutually exclusive, we can see them as being legitimate different ways of addressing the same 
topic. And if they are legitimate ways of addressing the same topic, we can overcome our past divisions and recognize that we may see it from a different point of view. Very powerful argument in today's ecumenical climate. Everything needs to be considered as a legitimate way of looking at things. And the task of ecumenical theologists is to provide a generous space for different voices to be considered legitimate ways of approaching one topic, one subject, none of them pretending to be the only true position. It's a powerful argument having emotional strength, cultural power, and theological legitimacy. So, if we address the question, is the Reformation over, we have to be aware that the general cultural climate of our day has very strong um, arguments pushing towards the overcoming of the Reformation, or at least the readdressing of the Reformation into a ecumenical pluralist embracing exercise. These matters which divided us in the past are now considered not being sharp points of division but legitimate viewpoints which need to be need, need to complement one another. And moreover after Vatican II in the middle of the 20th century. The 20th century has been called the ecumenical century because it has softened the relationships across denominational lines and it has introduced this idea that ultimately the church needs to come to terms with its plural setting, pluralistic setting, accepting all expressions of the church and accepting all uh, expressions of theology as part of this composite um, Christendom or Christianity. And uh, indeed, in many parts of the world, not all parts of the world, but many parts of the world, the relationships between evangelicals and Catholics in particular have become friendly, collaborative. And so even even from the relation, uh, relationship point of view, what used to be very divided communities are now very much one next to the other, if not one joining hands with the other. Where once there was persecution and animosity, there is now friendship and collaboration. What's the point of maintaining the claims of the Reformation in our present-day world? So if you argue that the Reformation is not over, you have to deal with these issues. They are not to be taken for granted. I mean, your answer not, doesn't need to be taken for granted. The question still remains, though, 
Have the fundamental differences between Catholics and Protestants, evangelicals, disappeared? In other words, is it true that what used to be considered as a sharp division <clears throat> is now to be considered as a different way of looking at the same thing? And in order to respond to, this question, to that question, you have to decide what, uh, what was at stake at the Reformation in the 16th century. Because de depending on your answer to the question, what was the Reformation? What is the Reformation? Will then depend your answer to the question whether or not it is now over. In some people's mind, the Reformation was mainly a political movement of arising from northern, some northern countries against the political power of the Church of Rome, originating a political answer leading to political wars, leading to bloodshedding, leading to political divisions, leading to violence. And they are saying, if this was the Reformation, we want this Reformation to be over. We don't want violence. We don't want religious conflicts. We don't want religions to arm weapons. But was, is this answer a, the right answer to the question of what was the nature of the Reformation. Of course, the Reformation had political consequences and it had political elements in it, as it had social elements and economic elements and uh, cultural elements and language elements. It, it is a complex historical phenomenon. But looking at it from a theological point of view, let's say from a Christian, spiritual, theological point of view, the Reformation cannot be reduced to a mere political reaction of certain people groups against the, the established powers of the day. In the reformers' minds and hearts, the central issue of their inquiry and uh, effort was the recovery of two main truths that had been obscured in medieval Christianity. So in order to answer the question whether or not the Reformation is over, you have to be aware that if you are going to answer, you have to make your mind on what was the essence of the Reformation. And what is the essence of the Reformation? If the essence of the Reformation was political, then people would say, it's over. We don't want to have confessional territories. We, don't, we want to move beyond confessionalizations, confessional claims, hiding politi a political struggle and a political battle. But if you answer to the question on what was the essence of the Reformation and what is the essence of the Reformation, answering to this question by saying and recognizing that the heart of the Reformation was theological, 
then you have to accept the fact that the Reformation was ultimately a call to recover the authority of the Bible over the church and a call to appreciate afresh the fact that salvation comes through us by Christ alone, through faith alone. You see, the question whether or not the Reformation is over needs some unpacking. And you have to navigate through very complex issues in order to decide what we are referring to when you speak about the Reformation, what you are referring to when you speak about it being over, and running against a general, generally accepted cultural climate which doesn't want divisions, but wants people to move along together. So the authority of the Bible is one of the two main pillars of the Reformation. Now, even after five centuries, the Catholic Church is still a system, religious system, that is not based on Scripture alone. At the Council of Trent, the Catholic Church decided that the call of the Reformers to ground the Christian faith on Scripture alone was not the Catholic way. And in the following five centuries, it has been the standard, consistent position of the Catholic Church. So if the ultimate authority of the Bible is decisive to decide whether or not the Reformation is over, it was decisive then, and it's still decisive now. Because the Catholic Church responded negatively in the 16th century and has been keeping or responding, keeping uh, that response throughout the following centuries. The Bible is only one source of authority. Tradition precedes the Bible, is bigger than the Bible, and is not revealed through Scripture alone, but through the ongoing teaching of the church. So if, if the authority of the Bible, the ultimate authority of the Bible, was an issue in the 16th century, causing the reformers to call the church to go back to the sources of biblical revelation, that issue is still with us. Because the Church of Rome, although it has nuanced its position on the Bible tradition, the magisterium, it has not changed it radically. It has not embraced the Reformers' view, or should I say, the Biblical view. One example of this, just a short example, the development, the post-Reformation developments uh, in Marian theology, in Mariology. The Catholic Church, after the Reformation, has issued three new dogmas. That is, it has exercised its ultimate magisterial authority in promulgating binding beliefs. Binding beliefs means that if you are a conscientious Catholic, you must believe those dogmas. 1854, dogma of the Immaculate Conception of Mary. Mary being believed as being preserved from the stain of original sin. 
1854. This is a dogma. This is, this is a defining belief of the Catholic faith after the Reformation, not based on scripture, and yet being binding for all faithful. The last dogma was 1950. 1950, again, a Marian dogma, the dogma of the bodily assumption of Mary, claiming that as soon as she died, she was taken, body and soul, to the heavens without going through the ordinary decomposition of the body. This is not a truth that you can find in the Bible, and yet it is a defining doctrine of the Catholic Church. In between these two Marian dogmas, we find the 1870 dogma of papal infallibility, elevating the authority of the Pope as he speaks ex cathedra from the chair to infallible statements. So, giving the prerogatives of the infallible teachings of Christ to a teaching office of a man. These are binding dogmas of the Catholic Church. And so, if we want to say that if the ultimate authority of the Bible was a, a crucial topic, an issue in the 16th century, nowadays we are not in, better, in a better position. We are actually in a worse position because the Catholic Church has committed itself not to opinion, theological opinions, but to unchangeable, binding dogmas which are not based on Scripture at all. And yet, they are considered as being defining, defining the Christian faith. So, if this is true, we are in a worse situation than the 16th century, where the Catholic Church had a more fluid view of the relationship between the Bible and tradition. Now is a much more determined and fixed, and tragically, the Church has exercised its ultimate highest authority, binding itself to non-biblical doctrines. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. The Catholic Church responded, responded negatively to the claims of the Reformers. Salvation is a gift of God, yes, but we have to somehow contribute to it by receiving the sacraments and working through our salvation by performing religious works and ultimately hoping to receive the reward. And the Council of Trent gave this response, the official imprint. Now, the situation has not get, uh, got better in recent uh, centuries, although in our ecumenical setting, uh, the Catholic Church has softened the language and has embraced elements, language, words that seem to come closer to the reformer's view. We talked about 
the joint declaration on justification by faith yesterday. We're not going back to repeat those things. But ultimately, what they are saying now is basically in taking the words of the reformers and giving them nuanced meanings in order for them to mean something that appears to be what the Catholic Church teaches. Now, what should we do then if the Reformation is not over? Based on the two main issues the, ref the Reformers taught, the ultimate authority of Scripture, salvation by grace alone through faith alone, what are we to do? Of course, we want to love all our Catholic friends. And of course, on the global scale, on a nationwide scenario and so on, we need to engage in friendly relationships. The fact that we are divided in doctrine doesn't mean that we are authorized to be harsh, judgmental, and divisive in the, term, in, in the sense of being uh, emotionally against people. Actually, our needy world demands that people who share same or similar values come together to work together in joint efforts when it comes to issues in society and culture that need to be preserved, need to be promoted in ethics, in social life, not only with Catholics, but with all people of different persuasions having similar views on the sanctity of life, the sanctity of marriage, the protection of the weak, the need for fair practices in society. These are things that we need to work with people from different persuasions, not changing, not exchanging what is our task, what is uh, something that we need to do as part of our society on the ground of common grace and in view of co-belligerence, not exchanging this with sharing a common mission based on Christian unity. There is a clear distinction between the two and we have to be very aware of the distinction because every joint effort may, can be described as being a joint mission based on Christian unity. We have to be aware that this is not the case. Every joint effort in society needs to be accounted for on the ground of common grace and in view of co-belligerence. That doesn't entail having a common mission and doesn't entail sharing the same Christian unity. That's a tool that our Protestant heritage and the Bible ultimately gives us to be good citizens in society, not being afraid of collaborating with all people that agree to work with us on single issues. But that's very different from saying we're all united on the basis of a Christian faith and therefore we can join in joint efforts having the same common mission. So certainly collaboration. We don't want to promote a neo-fundamentalist 
separatist view whereby we close ourselves in our little communities, being afraid of working together with others. But we want to do this with principles, biblical principles, which allows us to work with all people around us on the basis of common grace in view of co-belligerence, rather than blurring the lines and saying we have all a common mission based on Christian unity. That distinction in our world needs to be really and carefully maintained if we don't want to go into this ecumenical, inclusive, gray embracement. So co-belligerence, yes, but unity is only for born-again Christians. And maintaining clear gospel standards when it comes to fulfilling the missionary task of proclaiming and living out the gospel of Jesus Christ to the whole world, Bible-believing, born-again Christians must be careful to maintain clear gospel standards when forming common platforms and coalitions. Yes to common action in society based on common grace in view of co-belligerence, but maintaining unity with born-again Christians, Bible-believing Christians. That is what unity is designed for. Present-day Catholic Church has a very wider view of unity, and you've seen it on the series of concentric circles. And on that series, there is room for everybody, be it a Christian, non-Catholic, be it a Jew, be it a Muslim, be it a person following a religion, be it a person without any religion. Their view of unity embraces the whole world. And we, if we don't maintain biblical standards of unity, we will be drawn into that map without even knowing it. Whereas we are open to collaborate, we're open to work together when it comes to common issues. And that applies to Catholics as well as to other groups in society. But when it comes to preaching the gospel, living out the Christian faith missionally and <clears throat> promoting the task of taking the gospel to the whole world, we should maintain clear biblical standards which teach us to, that we are one with those who belong to Christ. And those who belong to Christ are not those who are nominally Christian only. Those who belong to Christ are those who are believers in Christ, those who are born again in the Spirit. Unity always needs to be gospel-centered. Unity is the catchword of ecumenical theology. And unity is yet another word that can be used and misused in order to mean one thing and it's contrary. We need to be, we need to have biblical standards when using the word. So, five centuries ago, the Reformation was the attempt to reaffirm clear biblical principles when it comes to the doctrine of the authority of Scripture, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. These are standing issues in today's world. And the Catholic Church, although it has become more complex, more nuanced, it has not changed 
the response that it gave to those claims by the reformers. And not because of antagonistic animosity, but because of the love of the gospel, we need to maintain biblical standards. And so the question, the answer to the question, is the Reformation over? It is not. It is an ongoing task for us, both inside the church as well as in our witness to the world. So when I got saved again, uh, born again, saved again, born yeah. again. Uh, from a Armenianism background, would you say that Catholicism, Roman Catholicism, is there any connection with uh, Armenianism too? Is there a connection between the teachings? Armenian, what do you mean by Armenianism? Uh, thinking of work, um, saved by works because there is an un unconscious okay, okay. Um, sense of not doing enough. Well, again, there is a um, that sense of wanting to contribute to uh, God's gift is something that lies at the very in the uh, very deeply in our, in the human heart. The accepting a gift and receiving it as a gift is something that human pride doesn't really accept easily. So Catholicism is more, uh, has been more influenced by not Arminianism, but by Pelagianism or semi-Pelagianism. It goes back to the fifth century, fourth century debates in the early church between Augustine and Pelagius. And the Catholic Church, although affirming a moderate Augustinian position at the Council of Orange in the sixth century, basically developed Pelagian or semi-Pelagian views in developing its own views of salvation. So this is part of the complexity of the Catholic Church. On the one hand, it claims to be Augustinian, and there is a conciliar pronouncement uh, which the Catholic Church says it's part of their teaching, which is clearly Augustinian. That is, it recognizes salvation as a gift, nothing to contribute to. But at the same time, Pelagian views about us being in need to do something and capable of doing something came back into the teaching of the church and the Council of Trent embraced them. And so the issue of Arminianism goes beyond the issue of Catholicism because it is more of a Protestant uh, issue. But the issue of Catholicism has to do with more Augustine and Pelagius back in the fifth century. But basically, it reflects the uh, problem of the human heart to accept God's grace in its terms and wanting to play with God in a sense of doing something in order to merit something in God's eyes. Um, 
Could I just ask you to unpack the term co-belligerent yeah. a little bit? I didn't quite understand what you meant by that. Yeah, Thank you. yeah very good. Co-belligerence is a term that was coined by the uh, Christian apologist Francis Schaeffer in the 70s. Okay, co-belligerence. I understand that, you know, belligerence means war, doing war together. This is not the kind of language that we are uh, likely to like because we don't like wars. But the context in which that expression was coined was the beginnings of the cultural wars in the Western world, issues of abortion, issues of euthanasia, issues of the introduction of um, uh, different forms of family, and uh, they um, caused uh, conservative Christians to begin to think that the way to respond to those challenges was to see who was interested in doing something together in order to uphold Christian values. And uh, in, the, in the 70s, uh, evangelicals, Catholics, as well as other groups in Western societies began to work together to defend the unborn life, defend the family, and so on and so forth. Schaefer coined this term co-belligerence, doing, battling together in order to uh, confront or stop or diminish the influence of these secular trends. So co means together, belligerence means fighting, uh, doing fighting together in order to preserve Christian values or to promote them in society. That is something that has been going on uh, since. And I believe this is a good Christian practice that has to do with our uh, um, task of being good citizens. And uh, if we can find collaboration with people of other viewpoints, religion, or background, that's not the issue. The issue is to uh, define the issue we want to concentrate and to do a joint effort in order to preserve it or promote it. That's co-belligerence. But Schaefer clearly distinguished co-belligerence from Christian unity. Christian unity is only for those who are born-again Christians. Now, the shift that has taken place in North America as well in other parts of the world is to change, is to, the shift has, um, that has taken place there has been to change the co-belligerence into a Christian unity effort. ECT, Evangelicals and Catholics Together, in 1996, I think, was a joint statement by some Evangelicals and Catholics basically reaffirming the validity and the necessity of joint efforts in preserving Christian values in society. But the language then was framed no, long, no longer in co-belligerent terms 
as Schaeffer would have framed them, but in Christian unity terms. That is, we can do things together because we are united in the gospel. Now, that shift is very, very problematic because it changes the, the, the field of the game. We are entitled to play the co-belligerents, but as far as Christian unity is concerned, we have to maintain that it is based on Christian principles about what is Christian unity, and not to blur the two, not to confuse the two. And this is a, a very, very important distinction to be made in our contemporary world. Many evangelical Christians around the world do not see any difference between doing co-belligerence and doing Christian mission together. They blur the two, the two camps, whereas we need to distinguish them. We don't need to retreat ourselves in not being willing to engage common action, but we need to make sure that what we do there is based on co-belligerent principles, co-belligerent principles, and not in common mission. Common mission, we can do it with born-again Christians on the basis of Christian unity. I hope that this is clear now. Okay. I've got two related questions. One is, are there any potential Martin Luthers or reformers in the Catholic Church? And the other one is, uh, if you had a friend who was a born-again Christian in a Catholic Church, would yeah. you advise them to stay or go? Thank you for your questions. Uh, first of all, Martin Luthers in the Catholic Church. I think that there are many, uh, there have been many uh, reformers in the Catholic Church, but the ultimate test is whether or not you are um, able to maintain loyalty to the institutional outlook of the Church. If you challenge the institution, sooner or later the institution will expel you. If you, if you say you are a reformer, but you are not pressing the challenge to threat the institution, well, you, are, you, may, also, you may become a saint in the church. <laughs> and uh, if, yes, I have many friends who are still uh, in the Catholic Church. And uh, I do, I was one of them. So I do understand the complexity of what they are going through. And uh, for some of them, leaving the Catholic Church means denying their identity, denying their family ties, denying their citizenship. And uh, God has, you know, different times for different people in order to process, uh, you know, what happens to us. And so I, ultimately I would say that uh, remaining in the Catholic Church is like going to a restaurant that serves poisoned food. <laughs> you know, ultimately, ulti it may appear as colorful tasty and a good food and but ultimately if you keep on eating poison food your body will suffer and ultimately there will be
consequences. So I would say the body is capable enough to deal with some poison, capable to introduce it, but sooner or later there is something to be decided. And I'm not in the position of pushing people saying this is the moment. Now people have different times. But ultimately I think that if the gospel is not preached and or it is preached in a in a blurred in a yes and no way, it is very difficult to grow there. Um, I would like to ask, in the light of um, this year's celebrations and commemoration of the Reformation taking place all over the world, yeah. has today's Pope made any sort of official response to uh, the commemorations himself? Or has it even stirred up debates or conferences of this sort of nature within the Catholic Church itself. Okay, thank you. Now, the Pope doesn't like theology. He doesn't like theological debate. He says that uh, theology is, a, is, a, um, is something that the Church needs to be weary of. And so he says, uh, in, 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 in dealing with issues, he says, let's have the theologians discuss in an island. And when they are over, let them announce what they have decided. But as for us, let's walk together. So he's not interested in theology and he's not interested in, you know, uh, debating anything. He would say, we are, we are already united, let's walk together, let's serve together, and those who want to discuss things, let's do it in an island. So irrelevant. This is irrelevant. Of course, he cannot deny the whole you know, process of ecumenical theological discussion, but this is very low in his agenda. He wants to move forward in walking together. And so if we are not those who actually raise the theological issues, they will not be raised by the Pope. The Pope will, is all, all, uh, already in the, in the process of embracing us as well as other people. Yesterday you mentioned that the Jesuits were formed to counteract the Reformation. They're still in existence today. Have they evolved into something else or are they still countering the Reformation? And if so, what are their current aims and objects? Well, that's a very interesting question. The Jesuits were formed to uh, counter the Reformation and they tried to do so by learning the secrets of the Reformation in order for these secrets to be replaced or reconfigurated in a Catholic context in order to be weapons against the Reformation. Uh, interestingly, this is the first Jesuit Pope that the Catholic Church is having. And he comes to us, you know, the first saint he uh, canonized after becoming Pope was a Jesuit French um, named uh, Favre, who is remembered as being the smiling Jesuit. Saint Ignatius of Loyola was a very was a fighter, was a soldier. Other Jesuits were 
uh, harsh people against the Protestants. Favre, the French Jesuit, first generation French Jesuit, was the smiling Jesuit. And so there is a sense in which he wants to continue that legacy, continuing the Jesuit mission with a smiling face. And uh, now I'm not saying I think he's a kind person. And I think that what people say about him is, 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 is true. But it is not as simple as, as he appears to be. He's a, he's a complex person. He, his history is complex. The order he belongs to is complex. And his message is very nuanced. Very few people understand what he's saying although many people think they understand. So we are dealing with a very complex person, having a complex history, and we need to have apply discernment. So, yeah. Last one? Okay. I am not sure if this question is permissible, but uh, doctor, I would like to know what made you convert from Roman Catholicism. Oh, well, that's a good question. Thank you very much. <laughs> that, gives me, that gives me the opportunity to, to share my testimony. I was, I was a teenager. I was a teenager raised in a Catholic family as a good Italian. 95% of us have a similar start of their lives. And uh, my father was a devotee of St. Anthony. Saint Anthony was a medieval saint traveling across Europe from Portugal to France, ending his life in Italy, Padua, performing miracles along the way. And in Padua, there is a huge shrine dedicated to Saint Anthony. And four million people every year travel to Padua to pay tribute to Saint Anthony. My father was one of them. And so he would have a picture of St. Anthony next to his bed. And before going to bed, he would gather the family and we would pray, we would invoke the St. Anthony. He would kiss the picture, he would put it uh, beside the bed and would go to sleep. That was the kind of Catholicism we were raised into. I went to Mass, I went to Catechism, and as, as far as I remember, I was never exposed to the gospel. I was given a moral code. You do this, you don't do that. But I wasn't given the gospel. So when a couple, a missionary couple from Switzerland came to visit our family, do, going door to door in those years, 40 years ago, it was still possible in Italy. Now. People would call the police. If you go door to door, they would immediately call the police. And, but 40 years ago, they came to us. And this Swiss couple hardly spoke Italian. And uh, they said, we have two questions for you. And my father was very kind. He said, please come, have a seat. And so they asked, are you Christians? And my father said, yes, of course. We are Italians. <laughs> that's not what not <laughs> what that's not the actual meaning of what a Christian means. But for us, the two things 
were the same. And the second question was, have you ever read the Bible? My father thought he was a good Catholic, but he had never opened the Bible. And so he turned to my mother, I remember it, and said, darling, do we have a Bible in our home? <laughs> and she said, I don't think we have a Bible. And so he began to realize that how can you be a Christian without having opened the Word of God? And so he became interested in reading the Bible. He went to the priest because as a good Catholic, everything that has to do with your religion, spiritual life, needs to, be, needs to go through the priest. And so the priest, after listening to what happened, had happened, his answer was, you know, uh, if you would ask me to read the Bible with you, I would not have a clue where to begin. You know, that is not the case with many priests now, but it was the case 40 years ago. Many priests didn't have any education on the Bible. They knew the catechism, they knew the devotions, the practices, but very little Bible knowledge. So my father began to raise questions. How is it possible that the church that claims to be the Church of Christ is not teaching the people the Word of God, encouraging them to read the Scriptures. And so he began to read the Bible together with his missionaries and calling other friends to join the group. I was a, I was a boy opening the Bible in our living room and, well, discovering the Gospel. Jesus going through, preaching the gospel, performing miracles, teaching about the kingdom of God, the Apostle Paul reflecting on that, and then connecting all the story to the Old Testament. For us, the Bible was a book of mysteries, book of things that were not connected at all, bits and pieces of moralistic teaching here and there. Do this, don't do that. Do this, don't do that. But we'd, we'd never heard the story of the gospel, the story of creation, fall, redemption, the cross, the resurrection, what it means, how it, does it connect to us. And so we, my father was the first that eight months later professed faith in Christ. My mother came to Christ two months after my father. My brother and I, we followed after a year or so. The whole family came to a saving knowledge of Christ. So that's, that's the way. And, uh, when I was, uh, and going through this experience, I, in, in, I was in high school uh, then, or middle school, and uh, we were studying the Reformation with the history teacher. And so I began to realize that those history classes were not only part of a distant past, but what Luther stood for was also something that I would stand for. And so my 
my colleagues, my friends began to call me Little Luther. 